0: For over 70 years, Ashner has been dedicated to cancer research and new cancer treatment development, bridging innovations to the fight against cancer, including more clinical trials than anywhere else in the region. I'm Dr. Jonathan Mizrahi with the Oshner Cancer Institute. One of the most common complaints I hear from my patients when I first meet them to discuss their cancer diagnosis and treatment plan is that there is a lack of reliable, available information about cancer. Evaluating what is or isn't a credible source of information on the internet is challenging, even for the most experienced of Googlers. We are seeking to fill that gap by providing the public with understandable, reliable information about cancer. Join me as we talk to healthcare experts at Oshner about what you need to know should you or a loved one receive a cancer diagnosis. Welcome to All In Against Cancer. Melanoma is the fifth most common cancer in both men and women. Greater than 100,000 new diagnoses of melanoma are expected to be made in the United States in 2021. Unfortunately, the incidence of melanoma is rising throughout the world. In this episode of the All In Against Cancer podcast, we talk with Oshner Medical Oncologist Dr. Daniel Johnson and dermatologist Dr. Julie Dana to learn more about the signs and symptoms of melanoma what treatment options are available to patients and how to screen and reduce risk for melanoma. So, welcome Dr. Jamie Johnson and Dr. Julie Dana to the show. I really appreciate you coming on. Thanks for having us. Thank you. So, let's start with just a little bit of background introduction. So, uh, Dr. Dana, why don't you tell me a little bit about yourself and uh, introduce yourself to the audience?
1: I am a native New Orleanian. I attended the Academy of the Sacred Heart for 14 years, and then I did all of my undergrad medical, stu- medical school, as well as dermatology training at LSU. I've been working at Auctioner in the dermatology department since 2007, and in the past four to five years, I became more interested in melanoma and started Ochsner's Melanoma Clinic as well.
2: Dr. Johnson? Like Julie, I'm also a New Orleans native. I was born and raised in Metairie. I'm a Jesuit grad from high school, and then I also did everything at LSU, undergrad, med school, and residency. Uh, and then I trained uh, for my oncology training and fellowship. I was at MD Anderson Cancer Center in Houston, and I am a melanoma medical oncologist by training. And I'm also um, deputy director of the Precision Cancer Therapy Program, which is our early phase clinical trial program at Ochsner.
0: Great. Danny and I overlapped in Houston, so he was one of the uh, recruiting agents in bringing me over here. I did. I told you here. (laughs) Well, great. So, again, thank you both for coming, and um, (laughs) we'll get started. So, first, I want to open up the question really to both of you and providing a general overview of of really what is melanoma. You know, uh, how you would define it, where we see it, and how is it different from other skin cancers?
1: Sure. Well, I can start with that one. Melanoma is a cancer of the cells in our skin that make pigment called melanocytes. And it's different from other kinds of skin cancers in that it presents different clinically, and it also tends to be a little bit more aggressive than other skin cancers. Um, And the the reasons behind why it's maybe potentially more aggressive is that these melanocytes are inherently um, very migratory. You know, early on in embryogenesis, these cells are migrating all over to our body, not just our skin. And we have melanocytes in our eyes, in our mucosa, we have it in our them in our ears. We can also get them on our nail or nail apparatus, um, in our GI tract. And so, when these cells become malignant, this implies that possibly there will be a little bit more. Uh, ready to metastasize or spread to other areas.
2: And I think Julie touched on the different subtypes of melanoma that we see. The By far the most common are um, cutaneous melanoma, um, because that is the risk factor for that is UV light. But the other areas where we do have melanocytes that Julie was talking about, um, you can also have melanoma develop from. So, uh, acral melanoma, under the, the nails, which Julie had mentioned, or in the palms of the hands or soles of feet areas where you don't get a lot of sunlight. Uh, Mucosal melanoma in the head and neck, GI tract, and then even ocular melanoma. Over ninety five percent are cutaneous and about two to three percent are acral and and less than two percent for mucosal and less than one percent for ocular. So they're uncommon, but they're all very different cancers. Um, We're gonna focus mostly on cutaneous melanoma today since it's by far the most common.
0: Right. And from you know I think the general public's perspective, you think of melanoma, I think most people think of the cutaneous melanoma and these other rare subtypes probably aren't on the radar of most folks.
2: They aren't. I have seen a good bit of mucosal melanoma and I don't know if it's higher in this area or not, but at Ashra, I have a, um, a good amount of mucosal melanoma patients. It's a very different cancer than the cutaneous, biologically very different, response to treatments differently, but it isn't. In, in the literature, about two to three percent of melanomas are, are or about two percent of melanomas are
0: mucosal. And when you say mucosal melanoma, can you be more specific about where you're seeing these?
2: Right. So anywhere that we have mucosa in the body, which is basically, you know, the lining of our respiratory tract, the lining of our GI tract. So we see some head and neck uh, melanomas where they'll be in the sinuses sometimes or even oral melanomas within the mouth. Hmm. Um, and then GI tract, as I mentioned, and GU tract, too. So it's, it's harder to diagnose them. Unfortunately, for that reason, a lot of times they're diagnosed at a later stage.
0: Okay. Let's get it a little bit into the risk factors So, uh, Dr. Dana, can you tell us a little bit about known risk factors for acquiring or being diagnosed with
1: melanoma? There are a lot of risk factors, and some are more common and more recognized, and there are actually several populations that are a little bit more unrecognized that um, or more susceptible to getting melanoma. If you have a personal history of melanoma, you have about a 5% chance of having a second melanoma. So just, you know, knowing your own history is very important. If you have a family history of melanoma, you have about anywhere from a two to 10% higher chance than someone who doesn't of having a melanoma. So again, knowing your personal and your family history is super important in melanoma. If you have inherently very fair skin, freckled skin, if you have light eyes, If you have more than 40 moles on your body, or in particular if you have a lot of moles that are very large or very irregular, you have a higher risk for getting melanoma. If you have a history of some certain genetic disorders, that may make you a little more susceptible to getting melanoma. If you are greater than 60 or you are a male, you have a higher risk of melanoma. If you have any history of childhood cancer, like having a leukemia or a lymphoma as a child, that puts you at a higher risk. Uh, if you are immunosuppressed, if you are undergoing chemotherapy, if you have had a transplant, we see a lot of transplant patients at auctioner. Those are patients that we watch very closely for melanoma as well as non-melanoma skin cancer. Our sun exposure uh, patterns in our past history are significantly important. If you have a lot of long-term, just chronic, low-grade sun exposure, or if you are a person who just intermittently gets a little bit, um, a lot of sun, like a bad sunburn, those patients are certainly at high risk. Anyone that we see have used a tanning bed whether you know very seldom or very regularly, significantly increases their chance of having a melanoma. And we see that a lot in the younger population, and we're diagnosing melanoma more and more often in our patients age 25 to 29 than we had been in the past. And we think that the tanning bed might be playing a role in that you know, there are probably also some viral or environmental exposures that we've not yet recognized that might be contributing to melanoma. And then, you know, the most important risk factor that we talk about is ultraviolet radiation or sun exposure. And we'll talk about that a little later on because that is the one risk factor that we have a lot of control over. Some of these others like your family history or your skin type, you can't really control your family or the skin type you were born with. The other unrecognized population that does have a higher risk for melanoma than we think about are patients with Parkinson's disease and also patients with inflammatory bowel disease like Crohn's or ulcerative colitis, shown that those patients tend to have about a sevenfold increased risk of getting melanoma as opposed to those who don't and don't have other risk factors. So these risk factors actually they encompass a very large part of our population and a lot of them are unrecognized. So most people that we see might have one or two risk factors for developing melanoma.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. I actually didn't know the part about Parkinson's being a risk factor for development of melanoma. That's news to me. so. So, Dr. Denny, you see a lot of patients before they're diagnosed with melanoma or at the time of diagnosis. When you're looking at a patient with a skin abnormality or skin lesion, a spot on the skin, what are you looking for? What are you asking patients?
1: Sure. I mean, I've kind of made my career based on doing a lot of skin checks. I do skin checks all day long. And when I look at a lesion that I'm concerned about, I ask, there's several kind of basic questions we always ask. We ask the patients, is this a new lesion? Anyone over the age of 40, really, we shouldn't be getting new moles. We get other kinds of benign growths, like little red dots that are called angiomas, or little benign growths called keratoses. But beyond the age of 40, you really shouldn't be getting new true moles. So I ask the patients, is this new for you? Is anything new? And then I also ask, does this lesion have any symptoms? Is it itching Is it bleeding? Is it growing? Is it changing? Is it changing in size? Is it changing in color? Those are things that we are looking for that might alert us that this is a a cancerous lesion.
0: And then when they're actually in the clinic, you're looking at it, are there certain tools you use in the clinic to get a better look or what, what are you examining, you know, closely when you're looking at the patient after you've had that conversation?
1: So when I look at the lesion, we dermatologists on a whole follow the standard criteria of what we call the ABCDEs. So when I look at the lesion, I am assessing for, is it a asymmetric? That means if I tried to draw a line through the middle of that mole, if either side doesn't look the same, that checks off one of our criteria for an atypical mole. If the borders are irregular, that's something we're looking for. We want the borders to be nice and smooth and round. And if the borders are jagged or scalloped, Um, That is concerning. The C stands for color, if there's color variation throughout the mole. We want it to be nice and even, light brown, medium brown. If you see red and pink and white and blue and light brown and dark brown, that's a bad sign. The D in ABCDE stands for diameter, which is a mole greater than 6 millimeters should alert you and be a little more concerning. That's my least favorite of these criteria because I've certainly caught plenty of melanoma that are less than 6 millimeters, so I don't really follow that one all the time. And then the E stands for evolving. If the mole is changing, is it itching? Is it growing? Those are things that make us concerned. I also um, never underestimate patient gestalt. Sometimes as physicians, you know, we want to take these hard and fast criteria, and if the mole doesn't follow that, then it's probably not melanoma. But multiple times, patients will just, you know, they kind of perseverate. They say, "This is the one I'm worried about," and I always take a second look at that one, or I'm more adept to biopsy it because sometimes patient gestalt really, you know, um, can help you out, even if clinically you're not super concerned about it.
0: Sure, that makes sense, and then. Let's say you do have one of these lesions where you're like, hey, this meets one of these criteria, a couple of these criteria. Mm-hmm. You mentioned a biopsy, so you go ahead mm-hmm. and biopsy it. So talk to me about that. What are we looking for um, uh, when you biopsy it? Uh, what features are are going to be commented on?
1: So when we go to perform the biopsy, if there's a mole that follows these ABCDE criteria or if I use my tool called a dermatoscope that helps me to see a little bit below the surface of the mole and makes me feel like this mole is something I'm concerned about, it's a melanoma. There are several different approaches we have to biopsying it. And the size of the lesion, the location of the lesion, uh, those are things that dictate whether right then and there we do an excisional biopsy where we would numb the patient and excise the whole lesion. Um, More often in our clinic, if the lesion is small enough, we can do what's called a deep shave biopsy, where we intend to get the full lesion out and get the depth so that it can be appropriately analyzed. Um, Occasionally, we can opt for something called a punch biopsy, where we go around the lesion, almost like a little cookie cutter around it and put a stitch in. So again, it's dictated by the size of the lesion, the location of the lesion, and our kind of clinical feeling about what we think the lesion is.
0: Okay, great. And you have a patient, we make the diagnosis, they have a melanoma. What's next? I mean, we know in oncology that staging is very important. People hear stage one, stage two, stage three, stage four. Um, but, but let's get a little bit into how we're looking at the stages of these patients. So we know that many cancers like to spread to lymph nodes, to other organs. Is that something that you guys are assessing for with melanoma? And talk us through kind of how you're staging the lesion and then what we do next.
1: Sure. So this is where I also employ the help of our medical oncologist. But basically after in dermatology, we get the biopsy result. Um, The next steps are dictated by the report. That report will indicate The most important prognostic factor, which is the depth of the lesion. How deep into the skin is this melanoma cancer invading? And typically, we say you want to be less than a millimeter to have your best chance. But certainly, melanoma that are greater than a millimeter deep, we certainly can manage. We'll also look at other prognostic indicators on that pathology report. Is the lesion ulcerated? Does it appear that there's any invasion into nerves or blood vessels? How quickly is it dividing or changing? It can be indicated by the number of what we call mitoses. is an indicator of how aggressive it might be. And these things will dictate our surgical margins. Do we need to employ our um, hematology oncology team? Do we need to um, do a sentinel node biopsy? So all of these things are dictated by our pathology report.
0: Okay. Let's talk a little bit about what that means, a sentinel lymph node. So, Danny, can you talk to me about what happens if we do find some of these characteristics that Dr. Dana is talking about? What's the next step? Lymph node evaluation, what does that mean? And where does melanoma spread, if it does spread beyond that?
2: Absolutely. So, as Julie had said, the depth of invasion is the most important. And once a melanoma is a certain depth, usually greater than one millimeter, but even sometimes greater than 0.75 millimeters, it's really important to make sure that the melanoma hasn't spread to the closest lymph node from that area of the skin. Um, That's usually the first place that melanoma will metastasize to through the lymphatics, not always, but usually. And so in order to test for that, we do what's called a sentinel lymph node biopsy. And this would be done by our surgeons. Um, We have our head and neck surgeons that do melanomas from the shoulders up essentially, and our surgical oncologist that will do sentinel lymph node biopsies for other areas of the skin. And they basically inject a a radio tracer or a dye in both sometimes in order to track where the closest lymph node or where the lymph node that is draining that area of the skin is located. And they can resect that lymph node and sometimes it's multiple, two, three, even four lymph nodes that they'll take out surgically during a procedure. This is usually during the same procedure where they do what's called a wide local excision of the melanoma. So they're uh, resecting out an area, a couple centimeters sometimes, of skin around the diagnosed melanoma along
0: with the sentinel lymph node biopsy to make sure it hasn't spread to the lymph nodes. And depending on the lymph node positivity, if you have something that is involving a lymph node, are there organs that you commonly look at? Are there scans that you order? What do you do to assess whether there's cancer that's spread beyond just the primary site and the lymph node.
2: Right. So that also depends on depth of invasion, some of the prognostic factors we were talking about, like ulceration on the biopsy, and whether there's lymph node involvement, whether you need to go and look in other organs to see if it spread distantly. So only about 4% of melanomas will become metastatic where it spreads through the blood, not just the lymphatics, but through the blood to a distant organ. And the higher risk for that is if there's lymph node involvement. For sure, if there's lymph node involvement, we wanna get full body scans. So we'll usually get a PET CT scan. Uh, And then also for stage 3C, which is a little nuance, but if there's a lot of lymph nodes involved or if there's something called in transit METs or if there's uh, satellite lesions in the skin, these are all really high risk for the cancer spreading and through the blood. And so in that case, we would even wanna get an MRI of the brain to make sure it hasn't spread to the brain. The most common distant sites for melanoma to spread to are going to be distant lymph nodes and other areas, soft tissue areas, the lungs. It can spread to the bones, liver, and even brain. But usually it's going to be lymph nodes, soft tissue, or lungs.
0: Okay. And then before we're looking at staging, to go back a second, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but stage three would be involvement of lymph nodes. And then, of course, stage four is if it involves any distant organ or distant lymph nodes beyond those initial lymph nodes where it would have spread it, uh, at first—is that correct? Exactly.
2: Yes. Yeah. So stage three would be involving lymph nodes. That's right. And just regional lymph nodes. Right. So it can spread to a lymph node far away, and that would be stage four. But to simplify it, if it's spreading through the lymphatics from where it started to a lymph node close to that area where the melanoma is, then that would be stage three. Okay. But if it's spread through the blood somewhere distant to another organ, that would be stage four. Okay.
0: So let's say a patient has a melanoma that's taken out by Dr. Dana, one of her colleagues, excised. What kind of surveillance do these patients need going forward?
2: This is actually a little controversial as to what oncologists do, and there's no right answer to it for um, melanomas that have not yet spread to the lymph nodes. And it depends on the depth of invasion and it depends on whether there's ulceration, which, which Dr. Dana had mentioned before. For very deep melanomas, that do have ulceration and other risk factors, high mitoses, um, perineural invasion, perivascular invasion, all these pathologic findings that the pathologist will see under the microscope that are high risk for spreading. I'm typically pretty aggressive with surveillance Mm -hmm. because we actually know that those really deep lesions, even if there's no lymph nodes involved, they're a higher risk of recurrence than shallow lesions that have one lymph node actually, which doesn't make intuitive sense. But we do know that from our staging data So because of that, I'm usually getting imaging, which will either involve CT scans or sometimes even whole-body PET CT scans, uh, every three months for the really high-risk stage 2, which is the deep lesion without a lymph node, stage 2 patients. And then I'm doing the same thing for stage 3 patients as well. The stage 2A and B, which are going to be deep lesions but not ulcerated, those are more controversial. And I'll usually, for uh, some of those, get scans
0: probably every six months or so. So... Would you say, you know, Dr. Dan, in your practice, I mean, we we have a multidisciplinary approach we'll get into, but if you have a patient who you're staging as a stage two based on the pathology report, those are patients that should be set up with a medical oncologist?
1: Absolutely. I mean, we take, you know, every case into account, you know, we evaluate risk factors, Age of patient, how aggressive their lesion was. And we take all, and a a couple other maybe genetic testing that we do, and we take all those factors into account, and then we decide do you warrant being followed by a medical oncologist? It's super great that we have such a good team here at Auctioner and someone right at our fingertips um, to communicate about some of these gray areas. And Dr. Johnson and I go back and forth about a few of them. Most of our stage 2 a or though, I will have Dr. Johnson see him at least once um, just to kind of do a second good overview, and then we can decide do they warrant scans or is just clinically watching them good enough.
0: And let's travel a little bit into our approach to patients who unfortunately have stage four disease. So these are patients where their melanoma at the time of diagnosis perhaps has spread to other organs or distantly, or perhaps it was excised and it has come back and returned in other places. So Dr. Johnson, talk to me a little bit about your approach to those patients. What are you looking for? How are you deciding how to treat these patients?
2: Well, it's actually very complicated now, which is a good thing. Because it used to be when you had a diagnosis of stage 4 melanoma, and this is maybe 15, 20 years ago, we didn't have a lot for those patients. We had chemotherapy, which didn't work all that well. And it was a very poor prognosis, usually about a year. Um, And with some of the early what we call immunotherapies, it was about a 5% five-year survival rate, so very low. that's changed dramatically over the past 10 to 15 years. There's been new treatments that have developed new immunotherapies which try to use your immune system to fight melanoma, which melanoma is very immunogenic. Our T-cells can recognize cancer as foreign, and actually we may have cancer popping up in our body right now all the time that our T-cells are taking care of. Cancers that have a lot of mutations, which it depends on how a cancer develops. For melanoma, since UV radiation is a common risk factor, Radiation will cause a lot of mutations in our normal cells, and that's how a cancer will develop. Cancers with a lot of mutations can be recognized more easily by our T-cells as something foreign that they should attack. And there's been recent discoveries of something called immune checkpoints, where cancer cells and melanoma cells can put up basically a break, um, a flag that stops our T-cells from attacking them. And we've developed treatments now work by a researcher named Jim Allison, who recently won the Nobel Prize actually, called immune checkpoint inhibitors. And these treatments will block those immune checkpoints and then allow our immune system to fight the cancer. The great thing about these new treatments are because our immune system has memory, our immune system is able to continue to recognize the cancer as foreign and continue to protect your body from progression of the cancer and even recurrence in the cases that we have complete responses with these treatments. So it's dramatically changed the prognosis of patients with stage four melanoma. And in the most recent trial with combination immunotherapy, the the new five-year survival and even progression-free survival, meaning the cancer is not growing while getting these treatments, is over five years. And actually over 50% of patients at six years, if they're responding to these treatments, are still responding. Mm. So it's, it's dramatically different than how it was before with these treatments. And then there's also another uh, development over the past 5 to 10 years as well, something called targeted therapy, where we can analyze what mutation is driving the growth and spread of the melanoma cells and target it with a pill that blocks that, that cell signaling pathway. And that mutation is called BRAF, B-R-A-F, And if melanoma cells are driven by this BRAF mutation, we have two different types of pills that we can give that target it and can kill those melanoma cells and shrink it.
0: Thank you for that overview. I think that was a very good explanation of the way immune checkpoint inhibitors work, the field of immunotherapy, which has evolved considerably. And melanoma, in many ways, is kind of the poster child of how impressive immunotherapy has been in our arsenal of how we can treat cancer patients, something that's spread to other malignancies that we treat: lung cancer, bladder cancer, kidney cancer. All these other cancers that we're now utilizing uh, immunotherapy for. And you mentioned Jim Allison. You, you can't go into the airport and in Houston without <laughs> seeing a big poster of him uh, looking down on you. And uh, he's a recognizable face. And uh, you know, kudos to him and his team, and and really changing the way patients are being able to be treated. So, you talked about the BRAF mutation, which is obviously very important in this population. So what percentage do you usually quote patients that will harbor this BRAF mutation? It's between 40 and 50
2: percent of melanomas will have that BRAF mutation. And it's important to know whether the BRAF mutation is present or not, because the BRAF inhibitors will only work if that BRAF mutation is present. And actually, you can make the cancer grow faster if it doesn't have a BRAF mutation, you give these treatments. So it's very important that you know that information and something that if you have a diagnosis of melanoma, stage three or four, you should be asking your oncologist, have you tested, has the pathologist tested my biopsy for BRAF?
0: Right. And to be clear, I mean, BRAF is not something you were born with. It's not a genetic abnormality. Right. It's something that is acquired by these. Uh, exactly. Bat- it's, um, bat-
2: no, no, it's a. It's a good clarification because people hear mutation and they think I was born with this mutation. But no, the cancer cells are normal cells that develop uh, what we call somatic mutations, mutations that develop from exposures or other causes of cancer, that normal cells that develop mutations and then turn into cancer. So yes, this is a somatic mutation, BRAF, not germline, meaning
0: born with it. Right. And then finally, the last piece I want to talk about the stage four cancer is There's a population, and we mentioned earlier that can get development of cancer in the brain. So that spread of melanoma to the brain. Is there a special approach that you or your colleagues in surgery or radiation oncology would take to these patients um, and how you would approach managing them?
2: Fortunately, we've actually found out relatively recently in the past few years that the combination immunotherapies actually do work for brain metastases. They work in the brain. So our immune cells, our T cells can cross the blood brain barrier and into the brain and attack melanoma there as well. But the issue with brain metastases are that it's a very small area inside your skull. And if there's growth of something that's not supposed to be there, there can be serious complications very quickly. So diagnosing those patients with brain metastases, diagnosing those brain metastases early in order to try to treat those with things like radiation and even surgery before starting treatment and waiting for a systemic treatment to work is very important. So all patients with stage 4 and stage 3C, and I even get it for stage 3B, patients should get MRIs of the brain to make sure that there's no brain metastases. Um, There's been a lot of advancements in radiation for brain metastases as well. So there's now stereotactic radiation, gamma knife or stereotactic radiation surgery, where if you target radiation from different angles at very low doses but focus it at one location, you can have a very powerful effect, almost like surgical resection for that one brain metastasis without causing damage to the rest of the brain. So there's a lot of local treatments for brain metastases that are very important to do, especially for patients who are having symptoms from those brain metastases.
0: Now, taking a step back from stage four, moving into stage three, and I think thinking about it this way allows us to better understand how we got to our treatment of stage three. To define stage three, again, patients who have a melanoma biopsy proven and have a regional, meaning a nearby lymph node that's involved, shows melanoma cells inside of there. How do you approach that patient? What are their treatments?
2: Right. So these, um, these patients are the highest risk for their cancer turning into a stage four or distantly spreading distantly and becoming stage four. For that reason, a lot of these treatments that have been developed for stage four melanoma have then been tested in the stage three setting. So after you remove the melanoma with a wide local excision and there's lymph nodes involved and you don't see any evidence of the cancer anymore in the body, is there anything we can do to decrease the risk of the melanoma coming back? Because there is a higher risk and and for the more advanced stage 3 melanoma is even up to 75% chance that the melanoma will come back. So for these patients, they have tested immunotherapies. PD-1 blockade is the specific immunotherapy that's been tested in stage 3 and the targeted therapies, the BRAF inhibitors. And those treatments do significantly reduce the chance of the cancer recurring. So these treatments, which are very well tolerated, are usually given for one year after a stage 3 melanoma has been excised and resected.
0: Let's move on a little bit and talk about clinical trials. That's something that we harp on a lot at the Austrian Cancer Institute is that we we like to offer clinical trials to try to improve upon the standard of care, finding new ways that we can treat our patients to potentially have them live longer and even increase the cure rate. So, first in the adjuvant setting, meaning after patients have had their treatments for stage 3 cancer, meaning there's surgery for stage 3 cancer. Do we have any trials in that space? We do, and just actually just one recently that started at
2: Ochsner. Uh One thing that's important that we're trying to do with stage 3 is because these systemic treatments work so well, we're actually trying to limit how much surgery is done, and there's been some clinical trials, one of them is called MSLT2, where the melanoma surgeons were trying to see, do we really need to take out all those regional lymph nodes where a melanoma drains to, or can we just take out those sentinel lymph nodes and then give systemic treatment? And it turns out we don't have to take out all the lymph nodes. So the full lymphadenectomy is not standard of care anymore, which is very helpful for patients because Mm -hmm. there's a lot of morbidity associated with that and a lot of um, what's called lymphedema or swelling that can occur after those surgeries. So that's from the standard advancements in what we call adjuvant treatment, which is systemic therapy after surgery, even if you don't know if you have evidence of the cancer or not. So the problem with development of any systemic therapy in the adjuvant setting after surgery is that what you're treating is what's called micrometastases. So you're treating cancer cells that have escaped and are laying dormant somewhere that we can't see on imaging. So for those patients, you really don't know whether they've already been cured with surgery or whether there's a micrometastasis sitting somewhere that needs to be treated. For that reason, you don't want to do an adjuvant treatment that has the potential for a lot of side effects. And so the combined immunotherapies that we use in the stage four setting may not be the best option for patients receiving adjuvant therapy. So for that reason, we're not as aggressive with uh, clinical trials in that area, but there are some very well-tolerated combinations that are being tested, and we have one open currently at Ochsner.
0: What about in the stage four setting?
2: that's where there has just been a boom in clinical trials so ever since i mean checkpoint inhibitors came on the scene there's been tons of novel immunotherapies that are being developed in the pharmaceutical industry and last i checked there i think there's over 1500 combination immunotherapy trials in cancer Mm -hmm. in general um you know and then some of that's combining with chemotherapy some that's combining with other treatments but but there are a lot of clinical trials out there particularly immunotherapy clinical trials and many of them are in melanoma, because that's where immunotherapy got their start. So, we currently have four active, uh, five active now, stage four trials for stage four melanoma, and some in startup as well. And so, there's going to be nothing but improvement in prognosis and treatments for patients
0: with melanoma, even at advanced stages. That's great to hear. Now, we're going to move to our segment what can I do to decrease my risk? So, I'm going to pose this to you, Dr. Dana uh, What can I do to decrease my risk? Of getting melanoma?
1: Luckily, there are a lot of things that you can do. First thing that we always harp on is sun protection. As Dr. Johnson was saying earlier, ultraviolet radiation, we know, creates these genetic mutations in our cells. And when we have a healthy working immune system that can go scavenge around and fix those cells that are made abnormal by the sun, But occasionally, our immune system either misses one or is just not working correctly, and then those mutations in the cells cause a melanoma to develop. So protecting yourself in the sun is important, and it's the only risk factor we can really control. So, you know, you can avoid the sun from 10 to 3. You can wear sunscreen that's an SPF 30 or higher, apply it liberally, and apply it often. You can wear UPF clothing. We've certainly come a long way with the options that we have for wearing UPF clothing, which is, to me, much easier than applying and reapplying sunscreen occasionally. You want to wear a hat to protect your head and your ears, sunglasses to protect your eyes. I'm a huge advocate for living your life. Go to the beach with your family. Do things you want to do. Go to ball games. But just be smart about it. Wear your hat, wear your sunglasses, wear your sunscreen, and um, you should be well protected. There's also a vitamin that's not well-known. It's called HelioCare. It is actually a plant-based vitamin that is an antioxidant, and you can take this 20 minutes before you go in the sun. It is not a sunscreen pill. It does not replace your sunscreen or your clothing, but it is a little bit of added protection. So patients who have had a melanoma, patients who do have you know, a lot more sensitive skin, or if you know you're gonna have prolonged exposure, it's not unreasonable to take one of those. And those can be purchased very readily over the internet or most local pharmacies actually stock it. A lot of people just don't know how to ask for it. So that's the first thing that you can do. It's also very important just to be aware and know your own personal medical history or your family history. It's why I started my melanoma-specific clinic because I felt like there was such an education disparity between what kind of cancer did I have, did my mom or dad have melanoma, did I have a melanoma? I don't know how deep it was. These are questions that we should know. Patients should know the answer. Um, because if you know your history or your family history, then you can be a little more proactive at um, taking care of yourself or your family members. While melanoma is a cancer of the skin, there are other organs that you should be having checked. When you have that diagnosis, like you should see the eye doctor, you should follow up with your GYN if you're female, you should see your dentist regularly because of the mucosal melanomas Dr. Johnson was speaking about, you should be up to date on your colonoscopy. Those kinds of things, you know, they kind of all go together when you have melanoma. One thing we talk about to all of my melanoma patients is don't smoke. Smoking decreases the survival rate of melanoma, whether you're a stage one or a stage four, so that's super important. Uh, Know your own body, do routine skin checks, get familiar with what's normal for you and what's not normal for you. The American Academy of Dermatology has a great old video that shows you how to do your monthly skin check. And then, you know, if you have risk factors, just go ahead, get checked by your board-certified dermatologist. It's very important. It's been proven that melanoma can be very readily detected by your dermatologist. And if caught early, melanoma has a great prognosis. It's the ones that are delayed or there's a delay in diagnosis that the patients don't do as well. And also very important, check your palms and your soles, particularly in patients of color. These are patients that we tend to recognize their cancers later on because they're not looking at their palms or their soles and recognizing these atypical lesions. I talk to my patients, and this comes up a good bit in my melanoma clinic about diet. Does my diet affect my melanoma or prognosis or my risk factors? And I don't feel like it's very specific to melanoma. I think it's probably can be generalized to most cancers. If your immune system is not working well and at its optimal function, then it's unable to fix all of these atypical cells we're making all the time. So if you have a very high sugar diet, if you eat a lot of fried fatty foods and a lot of red meat, you're creating a lot of inflammation. And there are some studies that show that when you have a lot of inflammation, your immune system is not functioning at its max capacity. So I do speak a little bit to diet, to my patients, to eat a diet rich in antioxidants, lower sugar, not a lot of fried fatty foods and red meats. And that's preventative and helpful, maybe not just for melanoma, but lots of other medical comorbidities and lots of other cancers in general.
0: Great. Those were very practical tips and advice. And I think a lot of that would apply to a lot of our patients, not just with melanoma. In heliocare. I had no idea about yeah, that. Yes, so. I, I didn't know about that either. That's, that's, I need to go get yeah. some. Yeah,
2: that's right. And hmm. I just want to second how important all the things that Dr. Dana said, because even though there's excitement in treatments for melanoma, you don't want to have to see me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's still not a good situation to be in. So Not um, in the hospital, not even out of the hospital. Unfortunately, yeah, you, no one wants to see me. It's very important for patients to get their skin checks. And actually, I mean, someone who's experienced and does them all day, like Dr. Dana, she does my skin checks because that's how much I trust her to do them. So it's very important to, to get that done, especially if you're at risk because of your skin type or a lot of the things that Dr. Dana said.
0: So how do we treat melanoma at Oshner? Let's start with a localized patient. We touched on this briefly, but what's the standard treatment that we're providing at Oshner for a localized lesion that we believe is melanoma?
1: Sure, so we will do our biopsy. If our biopsy indicates that the lesion is melanoma, but it's very localized and caught early, then what we will do is we will follow the standard of care. Um, The patient will have what we call wide local excision, usually performed by either our surgical oncologist or by our Mohs surgeon. And those patients, they will have their surgery. And after that, we will follow them regularly in my clinic. Most of my melanoma patients I see every three months for the first two years. Our data shows us that most patients will be diagnosed with a second melanoma or have a recurrence of their first melanoma in generally the first two, sometimes three years. So I watch my patients very closely. We always remind my patients, even the ones with early localized disease, evaluate your surgical scar, feel for any lumps or bumps around your scar, make sure you don't have any swollen lymph nodes in and around the area of your melanoma. And again, those patients, they just come for their routine skin checks. We get to be great friends. And, um, you know, as time goes, the longer they go without a recurrence or a new one, then we can space out our visits. Sure.
0: Okay. Dr. Johnson, for metastatic, meaning a stage four patient who comes in, how are we treating that patient? How do you approach that patient at Osher?
2: We do have a lot of clinical trials, and they are in the frontline setting as well. So we talk about what trials we have. I have been trained to kind of favor immunotherapy. So I usually like to start with immunotherapy if a patient has time, but it just depends. If the patient has a BRAF mutation in their melanoma, and I think um, they need a faster response, then we may use targeted therapy. But in general, because immunotherapy will, if it works, works for so long, that's usually what I start with. But there's a lot of different options at Oshner, and we talk about all of them. It's a long discussion, and like I said, it's a very complicated discussion, and that's a good thing that it's complicated.
0: Absolutely. Dr. Johnson, this is for you. What should I ask my oncologist my first appointment for my melanoma? So the first question to ask, and
2: the most important, is the stage even getting more nuanced than that, asking how deep the melanoma is on the pathology report. Are there lymph nodes involved? Uh, stage is very important to dictate what's the next step is. Uh, the next question that's important to ask is, do I need surgery? Do I need an oncologic surgeon to do it? And that has to do with depth of invasion and whether a sentinel lymph node biopsy is going to be needed. Another question to ask, and this is one that not a lot of oncologists know, so is important for the patient to bring up, would it help to get treatment before surgery? That's a new way of doing things. And Oshner, for some patients, will give immunotherapy for a couple cycles before doing surgery. So that's a question to ask. Another question that's very important, which will really impress your oncologist if you ask is, does my melanoma have a BRAF mutation? Because that will affect what treatments are available for you and something that usually is done on a path report and not a lot of times mentioned by oncologists to patients.
0: And if you've heard this podcast, you'll no, to ask that question, so. Of
2: course. Exactly.
0: And for our final recurring segment, cancer, fact or fiction? So I'll first pose this question to you, Dr. Dana. Fact or fiction? I don't have red hair, I don't have blonde hair, I don't have blue eyes, or I'm African American, so my risk for melanoma is low. Fact or fiction?
1: That is fiction. Um, Everything I talked about before, all the other risk factors that you could have, certainly indicate that almost anyone has the potential to develop a melanoma.
0: Okay. And another one for you. Most melanomas are preventable with proper sun protection and screening, fact or fiction.
1: Well, that is true, you know, but we can get melanoma in areas that are not Um, in areas exposed to the sun. As we talked about earlier, you can get melanoma from your eye. You can get melanoma starting in your lymph node or in your mucosal tract. So while the majority, the vast majority are on our skin, uh, there are certainly melanoma can present in other areas.
0: Well, I can speak for myself. This has certainly been a very informative and educational conversation for me. I've learned a lot both from, from you, Dr. Johnson, an expert in melanoma, medical oncology, a colleague of mine. But, but Dr. Dana, you know, I don't get to talk with dermatologists every day. And uh, I certainly am going to take some of your tips on, on a personal level to make sure I don't take any unnecessary risks and protect myself against melanoma. And I appreciate you sharing your advice and wisdom and experience with us today. And thank you both for coming on and chatting with us.
1: Happy too. I think, you know, often when you talk about melanoma, it seems so doom and gloom, but I think we are better at diagnosing it. We are better at treating it. And those things are very encouraging. We have a really great team at Ochsner. Um, so I feel really confident in taking care of our patients and something I'm passionate about. And I'm happy to be part of this team at Auctioner. It's great.
2: Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. I hope people can learn something from this and, and are very cognizant of sun protection and seeing their dermatologist, very important. Again, you don't want to have to see me. It's better if you get it early.
0: So if you or someone in your family has been diagnosed with melanoma, I hope this episode can give you some guidance to the diagnosis, evaluation, and treatment options available. The Oshner Melanoma Treatment Team uses a collaborative, multidisciplinary approach to treatment of patients across all stages of disease with the latest therapies to help patients not only survive, but thrive to schedule an appointment with a cancer specialist at Ashner go to my.ashner.org thanks so much for tuning into this episode i'm dr mizrahi with the ashner cancer institute i'll see you next time on the all in against cancer podcast